Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning, open to the book of Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 3, begin in verse 21. It's a good time to remember and reflect upon Christ's first advent, His first coming into the world. And what a precious gift and treasure we've been given in Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is no better gift than Him. So may our hearts be drawn to Him this morning and every Sunday. May we see His greatness, may we know His glory. And may our perspective of our Savior continue to grow and expand as we see more and more of His greatness and of His glory. Would you stand with me as I read Luke chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 4, verse 13. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah the son of Joseph, 
the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Abinadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ruah, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Kainan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Kainan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. To the one who walks among the seven lampstands, who walks among this church, your lampstand, give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to your church. Oh, dear Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There are certain questions that we come up against in life that are of the utmost importance. And oftentimes these questions often begin with revolving around ourselves. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose in this world? Is there any meaning for my life? Sadly, many people look to answer these questions on their own. 
they are told to look inside themselves, to look in their own hearts, in their own lives, in their own minds, in order to figure out the answers to these most important questions. However, in order to answer these questions accurately and correctly, and yes, there are right and wrong answers to those questions, we first need to ask questions that move us outside of ourselves. We must acknowledge first that we are not the center of the universe, that everything in the world doesn't revolve around us. When my children are young, I tell them this very plainly. I say to them, you are not the most important person. Everything doesn't revolve around you and what you want. You don't always get your own way. Why do I say that to my children? Because I'm a mean father. No. Because I love my children. It's because I know that a life that doesn't revolve around them is the best life, the life that they need. Not only do our children need to hear these words and ultimately find relief from these words, that's why I tell it to them, because I know that if they listen to me and they listen to this truth, they will find relief for their souls. But many adults need to hear these same words today. Some who are even closer to the end of their life than the beginning, sadly, still need to learn this lesson. I am not at the center of everything, and you are not at the center of everything, then the question has to change, doesn't it? Who is at the center of everything? Who is the most important person? If we cannot look to ourselves, we have to start looking outside of ourselves. So where do we begin? So many people, so many places, so much time, and our Advent season helps us in this regard. Our searching through all of the palaces, through all of the political capitals, through all of the powerful armies come up empty, and we are brought to a most unexpected place. We come to that place where the animals are kept. A most humble and lowly place there with no prestige and no prominence was born a baby who was placed in a manger where animals usually fed. This, this is where we're going to find a suitable answer? We're called to gather around this feeding trough and behold, this infant. Have you ever met those parents who are more excited about their child than you are excited about their child? I've been one of those parents, probably. You start asking questions like, how long do I have to look at the baby? I mean, it's a baby, right? It's, 
I'm excited. Hey, great. Congratulations. We want mom and dad to think we are really interested. We say things, look how cute he is. Uh, he looks just like you, Mary. Have we shown him enough attention? Have we fawned over him enough? Have we talked about him enough? Can we get back to doing what we really want to do? Can we get back to our own lives? If we're honest, it's not that impressive. But here we are again at another Christmas season. And it brings us to this crucial question. Who is Jesus? What answer would you give to that question? And would it be a true answer? Would you get it right? It is a question that you must answer with complete certainty and complete clarity because there is much confusion in our world about who Jesus is. The world is not able to give an accurate answer to that question. The world is not able to plumb the depths of this answer with any certainty. It's only able to offer up some opinions, some suggestions, some possibilities. This might be who Jesus was. We're not really sure. We must answer the question of who Jesus is with the truth of God's word. The Bible is the only source that we can go to in order to get the answer right. And its answer is full and complete and satisfying. There are two people who need to hear the answer to this question. So we are asking the question, who is Jesus? There are two people who need to hear the answer. First, those who do not know Jesus. If you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, if He is not your Savior and Lord, you need this answer because your eternal destiny hangs in the balance. I'm not here just to give you information about who Jesus is, but this truth is meant to take root in your heart and change you and draw you to Him. But those who know Jesus also need to hear the answer to this question. Why? Because it is in hearing who Jesus is that we are strengthened in our faith and we continue to grow. We are those who never tire of hearing this answer because Jesus is our greatest treasure. He is our highest hope. And in hearing the answer again and again and again, it doesn't dampen our excitement. No, our hearts are flooded with overflowing joy. Oh, come let us adore him. Behold the babe in the manger and be amazed. Stand in awe of him. Let him take your heart captive because when he does, you will never be disappointed. That is a promise. We begin to answer our question of who is Jesus 
with the announcement that the angel Gabriel gave to Mary at the beginning of Luke. If you turn back just a few pages in your Bible, you'll see that in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 and 32. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. Or we also say that Jesus is the Son of God. And as a title, Son of God, we learn about who Jesus is. So that's what we will be talking about today. Jesus is the Son of God, and there are two truths that flow from this title and work together. First, we believe that Jesus has been the Son of God from eternity. He was the Son of God, before he was born to Mary and placed in a manger. For all eternity, he has been the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. In fact, listen to what Jesus says in John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your, uh, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, there was glory that he had with the Father that was there before the world even was existed, even was created. This is the truth of the eternal sonship of Christ. He has always been the Son, and he always will be the Son. And so when we say that Jesus is the Son of God who has come into this world... It is not the normal way that any infant comes into this world. Their existence begins at the moment of conception. The son's existence is eternal. It has no beginning and it has no end. When Christ came into the world, he came from the Father. He left the glories of heaven, the perfect fellowship he knew with his Father. It is Christ's eternal sonship that is the foundation to the second truth that we believe, that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. That is, the Son, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, he was found to be in human form and how the Son of Man, or how the Son of God, has humbled Himself by coming into this broken, fallen, and sinful world. We read this in John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's this truth, that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate, that He is the Son of God come in the flesh that Luke focuses on in our text this morning in 3.21 through 4.13. How do we know that Jesus is the Son of God, and what does that mean for our lives? Does that do anything? Does that change us? Does that make any difference to us? Does it matter if Jesus is the Son of God or not? And Luke says, over and over and over again, it does matter. So what does it mean for our lives? Well, three points in our outline this morning. You can follow along if that's helpful for you. You'll find that in your bulletin. But number one, Jesus is revealed as the Son of God through God's own testimony. Jesus 
is revealed as the Son of God through God's own testimony. You see this in Luke 3, verses 21 and 22. I remember growing up watching Matlock. Does anyone remember Matlock? Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God? This is the scene that we see depicted in the courtroom of those who are testifying, and their testimony must be the truth. Any tainted testimony, testimony with half-truths, testimony laced with deceit and falsehood is dangerous and potentially could be damning. And when we come now to Verses 21 and 22 of Luke chapter 3, we are brought to the waters of baptism. This, however, is not the baptism of sinners. This is the baptism of Jesus Christ. A baptism where Jesus identified himself with Israel's sin. A baptism where Jesus would go under the water to depict going under the water of God's judgment and raise again depicting his own resurrection in which then he would give new life to those who believe in him. It was here at the waters of baptism he did the most shocking act of being baptized and communed then with his father through prayer. And then the most supernatural and miraculous event takes place. The heavens were open. This is how access to God himself was going to happen. It was going to happen with the heavens opened. And what do we expect to happen? But something that God himself does. So the heavens opened and what happens? He anoints Jesus with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, it says, is descending from the open heavens in bodily form. And Luke compares its likeness to a dove. It's not a literal dove. Notice what it says there. As a dove, like a dove. It's a comparison to help us picture what is taking place. The Spirit upon Jesus was necessary because it was showing Him to be Israel's Messiah. O come, O come, Emmanuel. They've been waiting for Him. This action fulfilled what was expected in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah says this in 11.2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 42.1, I have put my Spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nation. And Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And so we see this spectacular sight of the Holy Spirit descending in bodily form and resting upon Jesus Christ, saying, this is the King that I have sent. And then, not only do we see this miraculous thing, we also hear a miraculous and supernatural voice, a voice that is descending from the open heavens. And even if this voice has not been heard before. 
you know whose voice it is. It is the voice of God the Father. He speaks to testify to the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? God himself tells us. Jesus is God's beloved son, the one in whom he is well pleased. And God's testimony is completely trustworthy because God only ever speaks truth. He is the God of truth. There is no deceit in him whatsoever. Whatever he says is true and will always be true because it comes from his divine nature, which is perfect. God proclaims Jesus to be the Son of God, and he qualifies it with that word, beloved. This is my beloved son. There is an intimacy, a closeness in this father-son relationship. The father loves his son as it should be, and there is no denying the son also loves the father. And it speaks to Jesus' chosen position. Jesus, as the son of God, is the one who bears God's authority and fulfills all of his promises. And so God is well pleased in who his son is and in what his son does. This is the son who is the humble servant as described in Isaiah 42.1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. God the Father delights in his beloved son. This is the son who was anointed king as it's written in Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. It says this, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Are you willing to receive this testimony from God himself? He has said it about Jesus, his own son. Are you going to accept the word that God the Father speaks? Are you willing to listen to him? And what other word do you need? There is no other word to hear. There is no other voice that you need to know. You need to know God the Father who makes this proclamation about his own son in absolute truth. Jesus Christ is the one who is the Son of God, who is Israel's long-awaited Messiah, who is the King. This is God's beloved Son who has come to save his people from their own sin, to save them from themselves. Jesus is revealed as the Son of God through God's very own testimony. Number two, Jesus is revealed as the Son of God through his family tree. Jesus is revealed as the Son of God through his family tree. We now come to the section of Scripture we might like to skip over. 
It's the time of Thanksgiving, and maybe this morning you were thankful that you didn't have to read this passage of Scripture out loud with all of those names, one after another. Who wants to spend time talking about Jesus' genealogy? It's just a bunch of names, a bunch of people we don't know. We have to realize Luke put this here for a reason and for a purpose. It's not just filler. Like he had a quota of words he had to reach, and so he's like, well, how do I fill up some more space? I know, I'll put in a genealogy. That'll really put him to sleep. There is a theological purpose, and so it's for us to discover out what this purpose is. Jesus, it says here, beginning his ministry about the age of 30 years of, of age, 30 years old when he began his ministry. And before we get to the ministry itself, Luke launches into this long family tree. In fact, we read the son of 77 times in these verses. 77 times. And do you notice the genealogy works backwards? It starts with Jesus, and it goes the son of, 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 all the way back to Adam. If you go to the other genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew, it works the other way. The father of, the father of, the father of. But here, we hear this ringing in our ears 77 times. The son of, the son of, the son of. Where does Luke trace Jesus' genealogy? Well, notice where it starts. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, in parentheses, of Joseph. What does that do? It draws our mind back to Jesus' birth. It draws our minds back to the virgin birth. reminds us that Jesus' conception was supernatural and miraculous. And from an earthly perspective, there had to be some explanation. So it was supposed and thought by many that he was Joseph's son. But what does Luke do right here? He again emphasizes that he was supposed, or it was supposed that he was the son of Joseph. But in truth, who was he? Who was he? Yet Luke still traces his genealogy through Joseph as Jesus' legal genealogy. So where does it go? We go back. We go back to David. Jesus is in the line of David. Yes, he is David's greater son. But notice, he doesn't stop at David. He keeps going back. He goes back to Judah Yes, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he does not stop with Judah. How about Abraham? Yes, Jesus is the offspring of Abraham through which the whole world will be blessed, but he does not stop at Abraham. He goes back further, all the way back to the very first man. Luke takes us all the way from Jesus 
to Adam. And who is Adam? Adam, the first man, was created in the image and likeness of God, the one who was the pinnacle and the crowning achievement of God's creation. Adam is none other than the son of God. So what does Luke do? He bookends his genealogy with a son of God. Who is Adam? Adam is the son of God. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus was thought to be the son of Joseph, but he wasn't. Why? Because he is the ultimate, the final son of God. It points us to Jesus as the greater son of God, the true son of God. And see how this genealogy also broadens our perspective of who Jesus is as the son of God. Think about this. In his baptism, the nation of Israel was being prepared to receive their Messiah and their King. But as we trace Jesus' genealogy, we see Luke break the mold of limiting it to just those in Israel. By going all the way back to the first man, Jesus is the Son of Man who came, or Jesus is the Son of God who came for all mankind. Jesus is the Son of God for the nations. He came as the true Son of God to save people from every tribe and every tongue. This means the fate of all mankind is wrapped up in who Jesus Christ is. Jesus did not just come for the Jews. He came for the Gentiles as well. He came to gather in Jews and Gentiles together to rescue them as the Son of God and make them one body in the family of God with He Himself as the head. Jesus is revealed as the Son of God through His family tree. But finally this morning, Jesus is revealed as the Son of God through Satan's tempting. Jesus is revealed as the Son of God through Satan's tempting. We now reach the climax of our text. This is where points one and two meet together in a glorious fashion. And they meet in some of these dark days that Jesus knew in his life. They meet in Jesus' temptation. Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. So notice, this is no accident. <laughs> the Spirit of God is leading Jesus Christ out into the wilderness. He is there for 40 days, eating nothing. It's during this time he is tempted to sin by the devil, Satan himself. Three temptations are recorded for us. And first, we hear the devil say, If what? If you are the Son of God, Satan, have you not been paying attention? God the Father has just declared Jesus to be the Son of God. Jesus' genealogy declared Jesus to be the Son of God, but now the devil comes questioning, not because it is a question in his mind. In fact, the demons know Jesus to be the son of the most high God. Satan is tempting Jesus to prove that he is the son. Do something, Jesus. Show that you are the true son of God. But notice the irony here. 
The, the irony in the temptations is that for Jesus to fall into temptation would be for him to deny that he is the true son. But when Jesus resists the temptations, he actually shows himself to be the true son of God. And the first temptation comes to Christ appealing to his hunger. After 40 days of no food, he would have been hungry. That's an understatement. <laughs> Try going a day without food. And Jesus had been 40 days with no food. The devil tempts Jesus. Jesus, you see that stone? Turn that into bread. God the Father doesn't want you to starve, does he? You can easily relieve your hunger. Just turn the stone into bread and eat. Satisfy your hunger. But what does Jesus do? He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live by bread alone. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying he is satisfied in obeying his Father. Jesus, as the true Son, knew it was better to be fathered than fed. And Jesus found the most fulfilling life to be the life that depended upon and lived by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In fact, listen to what Jesus says to his own disciples in John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. The disciples are coming to Jesus. Jesus, eat something. You need to keep up your strength. Jesus is saying, I find my fullness, my filling, my satisfaction in doing the will of God. That's, that's when I'm satisfied. Jesus did not come to satisfy, to satisfy himself, but rather to deny himself. Jesus was not to act independently of God. He, as the Son of God, still depended on His Father completely. First temptation didn't work for Satan. So next, he takes Jesus up and shows Him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Promises to give Him authority over all of these Kingdoms, to give these kingdoms and their glory to him. If he would but what? Worship him. We might think for a moment that this isn't the devil's to offer. Can the de does the devil have all of these kingdoms and can he offer them to Jesus? There may be a sense in which the devil believes he has more authority than he does. First John says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But do we see how Jesus responds here? Again, he quotes from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6.13. And Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Worship is to go to God alone. So what is Jesus saying? He is saying he will remain true in his allegiance to his father. That is what the devil wanted. The devil wanted Jesus' allegiance. That is what worship shows. Your allegiance is shown 
in what you worship. The Lord God demands allegiance to him and to him alone. He is alone worthy of all praise. Jesus' heart could not be divided. To fall into this temptation, Jesus would have had to seize power for himself, turn his back on his own father. Remaining true in his allegiance, however, meant patiently waiting to receive from God's gracious hand all that God had promised to give him his own ruling son. To patiently wait for a kingdom that would be given to him where he would have everlasting dominion. Finally, the devil takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple. Think about it, the temple, where you would go to draw near to God, where you would be close to God, where you would think that if you were safe, you would be safe at the temple. Maybe there you would find a refuge. Jesus, if there is anywhere the Father will save you and rescue you, you, it's here at the temple. So go ahead, throw yourself off, jump And don't give me another Bible verse, Jesus. Let me give you a Bible verse. And so Satan quotes Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a a stone. Do you notice how Jesus read Psalm 91? Jesus read Psalm 90, or I'm sorry, Satan read Psalm 91 in a Christ-centered way. He says, I know Psalm 91, and I know that Psalm 91 is about you, Jesus. So let me quote this verse to you, and how are you going to respond? Makes Makes me think that just because you might read the Bible in a Christ-centered way. Just because you might be able to quote some Bible verses doesn't mean that you love Christ. Satan can read the Bible in a Christ-centered way. Or, I'm sorry, Satan can quote the Bible in a Christ-centered way. Satan can use some Bible verses. Satan can even twist the promises of God and use them in a self-satisfying way. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, you've misapplied those verses. Notice Jesus doesn't say, hold on Satan, you're reading those wrong. He says, you are misapplying those verses because there is another verse you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's what Jesus would have been doing if he had jumped. Jesus refused to test his father's protection. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. The father is not to be tested as if he needed to prove himself Jesus did not need to do something to force God's will. He trusted that God's will would be done. He trusted God's way of the cross rather than the way of glory that Satan offered to him. In all of these temptations, Jesus shows himself to be the faithful son of God. So why was Jesus tempted? 
Was Jesus tempted merely as an example of how we should combat our own temptations? Isn't this sometimes the way that we hear about the temptation of Jesus? Well, Jesus used the Bible to combat his temptations, so you should use the Bible to combat your temptations. Yes, we would do well to follow his example. He embodied Psalm 119.11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. But there's more to the temptations than that. Remember point number one. Through God's own testimony, we know Jesus is the Son of God who came as Israel's Messiah. And now, what does this Messiah do? His path follows the nation of Israel. When Israel came out of Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus wandered for 40 days in the wilderness. And yet, what happened to Israel when they heard the voice of the Lord? They hardened their hearts in rebellion against Him. They rebelled when they lacked food and water. They fell down and worshipped the golden calf. They put the Lord their God to the test. What was the wilderness wandering a reminder of for the Israelites? Israel, the people designated as the firstborn son of God, failed miserably. They rejected the Lord, they forsook the Lord, they did not remain true to their father. But what does Jesus do in the wilderness? He succeeds where Israel had failed. He holds fast to his father. He remains true to him. What is Luke telling us? Jesus is the true and better Israel, the son who obeys his father completely and in every way, the Israel who triumphs where the other Israel had failed. But we also turn again to point number two. Jesus as the son of God, as shown through this revelation of his family tree, came for all mankind. A son who takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And here, in Christ's temptation, we see the contrast of what Jesus experienced and what Adam experienced. Adam had not fasted in the Garden while Jesus had fasted for 40 days. Adam could eat from any tree that was in the Garden save one, while Jesus denied himself food. Adam was in paradise while Jesus was in the wilderness. The devil usurped Adam's authority and whispered in Eve's ear, did God really say? While Satan comes straight to the head in the wilderness and says in Jesus' ears, if you are the son of God. And what happened in the garden? With all of his advantages, with all that God had graciously granted to Adam and to Eve, they fell and they sinned against the Lord. But in the wilderness, with nothing but hunger, with all of the disadvantages, everything seemed to be against him, Jesus did not fail. What does this tell us? Jesus is the last Adam. 
The first son of God failed and fell, and the whole cosmos was affected, cast into misery and brokenness and sin. But the second son of God, the true son of God, and the last Adam perfectly obeyed the Father, and it's through him that everything in this world, in all of the cosmos, will be made right again. It is through the perfection of Christ The one who is there seated on the throne who is able to declare, Behold, I am making all things new. And before we move too too fast past these temptations, let's just meditate on them here for a moment. Why these three temptations? I mean, these weren't the only three temptations that Satan put before Jesus, but why these three? I think because these three temptations get to the heart of our temptations. These temptations get to the heart of our failures and sin. What's our first problem? We're looking in all the wrong places for something to satisfy that will never satisfy. We try to fill the emptiness and the void in our lives with things that promise good to us. And why do we still feel so empty? All of the food that we've been filling our bellies with has expired. Where do we show our allegiance? So many things in our world vying for our allegiance. Worship me, worship me, worship me, or even worship self. How many times have our hearts been divided? How many times has our allegiance to God not been true? How many times has our allegiance fallen and we've worshipped something other than the Creator who was blessed forever? And how many times have we put the Lord our God to the test? God, if you really love me, God, if you're really there, God, I need you to do this one thing for me. We fail and failed miserably. But Jesus Christ didn't fail and never does fail. How is your heart ever going to be satisfied? How is your heart ever going to find that true, undivided allegiance? How is your heart ever going to say, I don't need to put the Lord the God, my God to the test because he has proved himself over and over and over again as faithful only through Jesus Christ. 
only through him. Jesus, obedience is necessary for our righteousness. His obedience, in fact, becomes our obedience. Listen to what it says in Romans 5, verse 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So that's Adam, right? Adam, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So we would say this. Everyone is in Adam. We are all sinners in Adam. But listen to what it says. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the first Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's what? Obedience, many will be made righteous. It's through Christ's obedience that those who call themselves Christians are made righteous. Jesus' obedience is what secures our salvation. Do you ever doubt your salvation? Do you ever question, am I really saved? Do I really know Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ's obedience is the security for our salvation. It's what holds us fast. Because if Jesus failed, if Jesus didn't obey in one small way, then there is no salvation, then there is no security, and then there is no life. It's condemnation forever away from God. And it's here, it's here in Luke, we see this question beautifully answered. Because we hear it in our world, can you ever lose your salvation? If your salvation depends on you, if your salvation depends on how good you are, if your salvation depends on how nice you've been, if your salvation depends on your generosity, your giving of time, your benevolence, your gifts, your service, then yes, you can lose your salvation. But if your salvation depends upon what Christ has done, upon his perfect obedience, an obedience that brought him to the point of death, even death on a cross, and then three days later he was risen again from the dead, then no, you cannot lose your salvation. Christ's complete righteousness and perfect life is absolutely necessary because Jesus had to be the perfect sacrifice in our place. Our lamb is blameless and spotless and perfect. A sinner could not die in our place. Only someone totally righteous could die in our place. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is our perfect sacrifice who died in our place in order to save us from our sin. And we see the Son of God is perfect because He is divine. He is God. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? This is the Son of God we need. 
This is the Son of God through whom life is given. What are we to do or so what? This is the Son of God you must believe. This is the Son whom you must trust. This is the Son who alone grants you access to God the Father. It is the Son's sacrifice that is the only acceptable sacrifice, the payment for your sins. It's the Son's resurrection that is the only resurrection that is able to give you life. In fact, listen to what John says in John 20. He says this towards the end of his book. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so what? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 1 John 5, 11 through 12, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Do you have the Son? Do you have this life? It has been undeniably revealed to us that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate, and so we believe He is the Son of God, and so we believe He is God, and so we trust that He is our Savior, and that means we have life. And that's the life you need in your life because that life is eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning that tells us that Jesus is the Son of God. I pray, Father, this morning, if there's anyone here who has not believed in Jesus Christ and that he is the Son of God, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that they turn from their sin. Today would be the day that they put their faith and trust in Christ. They would find their satisfaction in him. They would swear their allegiance to him. They would no longer put you to the test. Father, it's in Christ and in Christ alone that we know forgiveness. It means we are not perfect. Even now, Father, as believers and Christians, we still sin. But we know that if we, are, if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you that because of Jesus we can be made, we are made righteous in your eyes. We are justified. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts would be stirred today in the security that's brought through your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.